This is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So, you do the math. This is hell. The Brazilian government of President Jair Bolsonaro is facing an investigation into whether or not they, members of the Bolsonaro government, the Brazilian military, or Bolsonaro's family benefited from corruption related to the COVID-19 vaccine. The investigation has captured the imagination of Brazilians, leading to massive protests in the streets against Bolsonaro, protests that are far larger than those seen in Cuba, but are being completely ignored by the U.S. media, while the Cuban protest story is continuously repeated in massive counter-protests in Cuba, go unreported in the states. This investigation into vaccine-related corruption could mean the end of Bolsonaro. Or it could mean the end of democracy in Brazil as Bolsonaro is already threatening to reject the outcome of the October 2022 presidential election. We'll get an update on what is happening in Brazil from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, who is currently back here visiting his hometown of Chicago. Brian Muir, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian's most recent writing includes his Brazil Wire article, COVID-19 scandal, Brazilian military threatens Senate, days after visit by CIA director, top military brass attempt to pressure end of corruption investigation against General Eduardo Pazuelo and his former allies. AIDS, excuse me, AIDS. Brian was on This Is Hell most recently back in March when we talked about his articles, Lava Jado Dies, Lula is Reborn, behind the Supreme Court ruling, as well as his work at Fairness and Accuracy in reporting, New York Times fails to examine his participation in Brazil's biggest judicial scandal. You can find our last five, maybe even six years of interviews with Brian at thisishell.com. When you search on his last name, Mir, that's M-I-E-R. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Talisur. Find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And during this week's moment, Jeff tries to tame taboos with inter- internet logic. And Jeff will be doing that live from the producer's booth in our studio across the glass from me. Crazy, right? Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far? Uh, That's funny. You like that chicken? That was amazing. Did you get a message from my girlie last night? Yeah. Yeah, she was blown away by it when I got home. She was like, I cannot thank Alex enough. That was wonderful. Uh, Never made fried chicken before. Sometimes you need to... uh plan and execute a large course meal to stop from you know what in yourself <laughs> so it was really great it really, i really enjoyed it uh so it i gotta ask you something man are you getting horrible outhouse like swamp gas odors in your home no this might be a chuck problem <laughs> no it's a devon avenue problem it's really really weird it's happening throughout my neighborhood it turns out here in chicago when we Feel some where we feel somewhat safe from the rising tides of climate change, as we're not, you know, near an ocean shoreline. Every time we get heavy rains, at least in my neighborhood, and with climate change, these rains are getting a lot more intense. Every time there's a downpour, we are reminded the city is built on a freaking swamp. The earth can't hold all the rain and the stench of waste that 
percolates up from the ground can be smelled not only in the streets when you just walk down the street near sewers or or you know you're in a parking lot you can smell it coming out of the drains and you and it comes out in your basement you can feel uh, smell it coming out of the drains in the basement but it also bubbles up our pipes all the way to our third floor pump plumbing and there's nothing quite like having indoor plumbing that smells worse than the last outhouse I had the shame of using. It's really, really disgusting. When was the last time you used an outhouse? Late, late June. <laughs> uh, my kid tried to use the outhouse at Historic Wagner Farms, which is uh, not in use. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I had a, it's a prevent an emergency right there. <laughs> You're What's, welcome, everyone else at Wagner Farms. What the hell's Wagner Farms? It's an old working farm out uh, a little bit past Chicago. Oh. They got... They got pigs, they got sheep, they got cows, all sorts of livestock. More important than my shame and the fecal fragments percolating in my home bathroom, Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, who will be the last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be the last up against the wall when the revolution comes? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever this is hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks. This week goes out to Will in Hamilton, Ontario, Riley in Milwaukee, Kelly in State College, PA, and Angus in Los Angeles for showing their support. Thanks, Will, Riley, Kelly, and Angus. We truly appreciate it. Oh, and we also got support overnight from Rachel G. Rachel says, thank you. No, thank you, Rachel. And if you support This Is Hell, we'll thank you on air, too. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer to this week's question from hell by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff tries to tame taboos with internet knowledge. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest, Brian Muir. Again, this week's question is... Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Join me Saturday, July 24th, just in a couple of Saturdays, in Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2 p.m. for a short non-celebration of This Is Hell airing on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, for 25 years, as I will be downstairs to see Jeff Dorchin deliver some of his favorite moments of truth accompanied by live music. The performance only lasts about an hour, so make certain to be here on time. Again, that's 2 p.m. on Saturday, July 24th. If instead of listening live online to the daily stream and podcast here at thisishell.com, you listen to the weekly Saturday morning world broadcast premiere on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment, as soon as that ends, head down or up or over to Carrie's to see Jeff Dorchin do the moment of truth live with music. Again, let me stress, this is not the 25th anniversary party, which is delayed until Saturday, September 18th, two months from now because of the ongoing pandemic. However, this is happening on this event with Jeff Dorchin is happening on the actual 25th anniversary of This Is Hell. But do not let that confuse you. The 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, This Is Art, featuring live music and lots of food, plus a raffle of This Is Hell-related stuff, happens in two months on Saturday, September 18th, Autumnal Equinox, Eve, 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 Eve. 
Listener Brian R. sent us an email overnight about the 25th anniversary party happening on September 18th. Brian writes, well, first of all, I want to thank you for This Is Hell and say happy anniversary. I guess I think of myself as an artist, but as a day job, I work alone as a gardener. And in those times when I'm down in my knees in some rich person's soil, not a euphemism, the familiar rhythms of This Is Hell feel a lot like solidarity. I even recite the taglines along with you like a gleefully brainwashed schoolboy. Yeah, I'm not going to admit to have a parasocial relationship here, but I definitely love the show. So in recent weeks, I've started working on a painting, riffing on the Wesley Willis bit at the end of the show. I don't know if it's the kind of thing you'd want in your annual This Is Art show, or if you had a thousand other things like it in the past, but I do know how much you love to get weird things in the mail, so I will probably show up at the studio whether... It will, sorry. So it will probably show up at the studio whether you want it or not. Hey, you can always use it as a fly swatter if you think the art is bad. But aside from all that, how do you select artists for your shows? And is it tacky to suggest yourself? Thanks again and much love, Brian. We select artists by having listeners send their art or suggest art and artists they appreciate. Remember, this is a listener appreciation party, so we want to have artists and musicians that are either listeners themselves or are those our listeners appreciate. Anyone interested in submitting art for the This Is Art show happening in the gallery upstairs from Carrie's Lounge during our anniversary party should send in your art or suggestion as soon as possible. This week, we are starting to seek out artists and musicians for the party. So send your suggestions for musicians and artists to chuck at thisishell.com. Brian or anyone interested in being an artist featured in the This Is Art show, just send us images via email as soon as possible if you want your work considered for the show. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act, send us your music or a link to where we can hear your suggested musician. Remember, we do not take any commission at all on artists' work. 100% of all sales of the art go directly directly to the artists and for musicians well to be honest we pay too much for vans if that's an incentive so see you next saturday july 24th at 2 p.m in carrie's lounge 2251 west devon in chicago's west ridge neighborhood to hear jeff dorchin deliver his favorite moments of truth accompanied by live music on the actual day that is our 25th anniversary airing of airing on wnur Rumors are Pete will be grilling as well. Then join us two months from now, Saturday, September 18th, for our rescheduled, due to the pandemic, 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. This is art featuring art and music suggested by our listeners. If you are interested in showing your work in the art gallery above carries or performing music in the bar downstairs, or would like to suggest musicians or artists, email me, ASAP at chuckatthisishell.com. And if you have something you would like to donate to our raffle as a prize, we would be ever so grateful. Just contact us, tell us what it is, or put it in the mail and send it to us at This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, what the hell is happening in Brazil? I think Jair Bolsonaro is about to die from the hiccups. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week. And we'll, we'll have Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff tries to tame taboos with internet knowledge. Alex, will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? The person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. 
Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. What the hell is going on in Brazil? People are fixed, transfixed to their TVs, watching an investigation that may lead to the ouster of President Jair Bolsonaro. Here to tell us exactly what is happening in Brazil, live from here in Chicago, Brian Muir is an editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur, English's news program, Far From the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian, how are you? Sorry, I just had to move outside and I didn't reconfigure the microphone, so I apologize for that. That no big deal. You write for weeks, millions of Brazilians have been tuning into the televised ongoing Senate investigation of alleged crimes committed by the Bolsonaro government in the ambit of its disastrous COVID-19 response policy, which has left over a half a million dead as the net tightens around top government officials and the far-right president himself. So, Brian, how popular are these hearings? Is Brazil transfixed like the U.S. was during Watergate or, to a lesser extent, Iran-Contra, Whitewater, which turned into the Monica Lewinsky hearings, or Russiagate? Are multiple networks showing these hearings, and are Brazilians seeing them everywhere? Well, um, you know, the Senate and the Congress, they have their own TV channels. So everybody's watching that, but then the big networks are uh, showing, you know, segments of it, (coughs) and some websites are transmitting the whole thing live you know and millions of people are tuned in it's like the oj simpson trial or something really that's what it reminds me of so this is not lava jato the scheme that the brazil's right used to take power from the elected president of brazil dilma that said are these hearings having any impact on how brazilians now view in retrospect the lava jato affair yeah of course i mean that whole thing was a farce from day one, as I talked about the entire time on This Is Hell, right? I think you remember. That was a complete farce. And so the fact that, you know, all of the um, convictions of Lula were reversed has contributed to his uh, regaining his popularity. And it's, it's eking away at the popularity of Bolsonaro. But what's really hurting him is his COVID response. You know, he assured people they had nothing to worry about. So all of his followers just ignored social distancing and masks, you know, and and were convinced erroneously that all they'd have to do is take hydrochloroquine. They announced they had this kit they were going to give out in the public health system that would, you know, that would cure COVID if people started taking it immediately when they got the symptoms. And it didn't work. You know, during the investigation, one thing that's come out is that the estimate is that over 300,000 people died in Brazil specifically because of Bolsonaro's irresponsible assuring his followers that they didn't have anything to worry about. And there's all kinds of, you know, crazy cases. In my in my wife's hometown, there was a bakery and the owner of the bakery was a Bolsonaro fan. And one of his workers came in with COVID and saying he was really sick and he didn't want to work. And the boss told him that he had to work. He didn't have the day off and that he, he didn't let him wear a mask. And so nine people in that bakery died, including the boss's and the boss's mother and son died from from COVID. And these are just case after case of, you know, former Bolsonaro leaders, uh, former Bolsonaro supporters losing relatives or dying themselves, you know, because they didn't, because they listened to the president. And this is why his approval rating is down to 23%. Even most people in his core 
demographic, evangelical Christians now prefer Lula to Bolsonaro. I had no idea. So wait, uh, these stories, like the one that you were just talking about with the bakery, I know you've told us that the the TV news, that the media, uh, uh, TV broadcast news, the media within Brazil is very pro-right wing. So how much do these stories actually get any uh, airtime? Well, the biggest TV network in Brazil is Globo. It's the fourth biggest open air television network in the world. And it was founded uh uh, with support from a group of engineers from Time Life in the 1960s during the dictatorship as a means of social control. And it supported the dictatorship. It only started calling it a dictatorship in 2013. Before that, they used to call it a democratic revolution. But even they have split with Bolsonaro now. And so they're attacking Bolsonaro every day. And the big worry in these large segments of Brazilian elites and the right that have broke from Bolsonaro is how they can create a new candidate as a kind of third path uh, to beat Lula next year. And not, nobody's working. Like nobody they put up as a potential candidate is polling above like 5%. And Lula's, you know, the way it, it's looking now, Lula would win in the first round if the election were held today. Which would mean he would get over 50% of the vote, so yeah. there wouldn't have to be a runoff. You also point out that among several scandals uh, uncovered in this investigation are a purchase order for 300,000 doses of Covaxin, the Indian vaccine developed by Bharat Biotech, which hasn't com- completed third phase testing yet. It's 10 times its list price. was That's how much it was bought for. From a shell company headquartered at a Singapore address, which appeared in the Panama Papers. This is what I don't get, and you might not either, Brian. Why? Why would the Bolsonaro government target this untested vaccine from a suspicious shell company? Why not simply get a vaccine that has been tested more, cost less, from a more reliable source that would not cause suspicion? What's the point? Skimming. They were just skimming. You know, it was the the other vaccines didn't um, offer them an opportunity to skim millions of dollars off the top. You know, that's why. Also, um, as John McAvoy reported in Brazil Wire a few months ago, the United States government sent an envoy to Brazil to convince the Bolsonaro administration not to purchase Sputnik vaccine. You know, so there was they were repressing some vaccines. The Bolsonaro administration was publicly criticizing and tried to block this vaccine um, called Coronavac, which was... um, developed jointly between Brazil's Butantan Research Institute, which is one of the greatest public health institutes in the world. They invented, for example, poisonous snake antivenom 100 years ago. Um, And he was trying to block that from being used even. And so it looks like what's coming out in this investigation is that they were blocking access to different vaccines so that they could favor Covaxin. And they were going to try and buy 200 million doses. This 300,000 was just a first batch. It's just crazy that they're just blocking vaccines that work in order to skim money. That's like It just seems incredible. On Wednesday, July 7th, you write that uh, right-wing Senator Omar Aziz of the PSD, the Social Democratic Party, from the state of Amazonas, is leading the investigation. And he, you quote him saying, the good guys in the armed forces must be very ashamed of some of its members who are being mentioned in the media today because it's been a long time. It has been many years since Brazil has seen representatives of the bad side of the armed forces involved in deceit within the government. 
In your estimation, Brian, how accurate is that statement? And if so, why has it been so many years since the bad side of Brazil's military has been involved in deceit within the government? Because they haven't been in control. That's all. They're, they're back in control right now. They, Bolsonaro has 17 current or retired generals in, his, in the top levels of his cabinets, and he's employed over 6,000 members of the military in his government. You know, so uh, this is the first time they've had power. And so um, this kind of like some people were looking at the dictatorship through rose covered glasses. It's been a long time ago. The young people don't really know what was going on in the dictatorship. And so much fake news, you know, fake information is being spread by these bots working for the Bolsonaro, uh, what they call his cabinet of hate, which is a parallel organization just generating um, you know, fake and false information on the social media networks. And so a lot of young people are like, oh, it, you know, they, they hear about the dictatorship. They hear that the crime rates, rates were lower. You know, and there's reasons the crime rates were lower in the dictatorship that don't have anything to do with their administration. In 1982, Rio de Janeiro became a main transport center for the Calabrian mafia in the international cocaine trade. And at that point, their crime rates started going through the roof. You know, uh, that's why Rio has so much crime. And Sao Paulo is also a big transport point through uh, on the cocaine corridor through the port of Sao Paulo at Santos. You know, so and people remember all the corruption during the dictatorship. But Brazil is full of unfinished mega projects that were financed by the World Bank in which the, the military dictatorship just took the money and never finished the the projects for example in the state i used to live maranhão there's nine gigantic dams that don't have hydroelectric systems hooked up to them they never built the the generating generating stations they're just like empty dams and one of them burst in 2010 killing dozens of people and um temporary displacing over a million people in the pindare valley in maranhão which i was up reporting on at the time um so People just don't remember, you know, and and uh, and so seeing the what the military is doing now back in power, it's very embarrassing for the military for some members of the military, and that's why General Braga Neto threatened the Senate, you know, he 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 gave a threat against them calling any members of the military to testify in the investigation, which is impossible because the health minister. Uh, uh, Pazuelo, General Pazuelo, was a military general, so they have to call him in. You know, he was the actual health minister when this Covaxin deal was pushed through. You quote that article, that threat from the Bolsonaro military uh, co-authored letter, which says of Senator Aziz's concerns over the bad side of the military deceiving the government, quote, the narrative devoid of facts damages the armed forces in a vile and frivolous manner. It is serious, baseless and totally irresponsible. The armed forces will not accept any frivolous attack on the institutions that defend the democracy and freedom of the people. And you add, after releasing the letter, top members of military brass told Brazilian journalist Bella Magal that they will treat any further calls for testimony from members of the military in the Senate investigation more harshly. What do you think that means as a threat? What do you think they would do? Well, during the dictatorship, the military was uh, specialized in disappearances, right? So, and 
Um, the day before Lava Jato investigation got to the Supreme Court, the day before the Supreme Court was going to rule on the admissibility of um, this very weak circumstantial evidence that um, Sergio Moro and the Lava Jato team had um, presented in the case, he died in a plane crash. You know, so the guy, I mean, he died. No, the guy in charge, the minister, Theori Zavecki, who was in charge of ruling on the Lava Jato investigations, admissibility of evidence, died in a plane crash the day before the ruling. Right. And, you know, in uh, in the 2014 elections, the third place candidate or second place candidate that, at that time, Eduardo Campos, also died in a small plane crash opening up uh, his vice running mate Marina Silva for a run who was favored by a lot of people in the in the uh, in the US government and the Anglo media she's a darling of the New York Times you know and so uh, I think when they make these kinds of threats the senators and Congress people who are being threatened think that they might be disappeared and you write that on the day of that vote on the Lula decision on whether an exception to the Brazilian Constitution should be made to enable the imprisonment of former President Lula before his appeals process tried out, uh, a visibly shaken minister, Rosa Weber, a Supreme Court justice, announced she would vote against her personal opinion in the matter and cast the tie-breaking vote to enable Lula's arrest. How much do you think the military's threat informed the court's decision to jail Lula and thus disqualify him from 2018's presidential election, giving Bolsonaro a much easier path to the presidency. Well, uh, you know, uh, General uh, Vilas Boas made a threat the night before the ruling, um, and it was read on global television's nightly news program, which is the most popular news program in the country, and they dimmed the lights so that the newscaster could read it in this very solemn voice. And I watched uh, the decision and Rosa Weber was really nervous, you know, and imagine sitting there knowing that, you know, one of the justices died the day before a big ruling. And, you know, maybe it was an accident. There's no proof yet, but it's suspicious when you look at the history of how, you know, the military operates in Brazil. Um, So I think it that's actually what caused Lula's imprisonment. Do you believe Rosa Weber is in the same kind of danger today as she was when, as you report, she was visibly shaken and casting a vote against her conscience to jail Lula? Well, the threat was mainly against this um, guy, Omar Aziz, who's heading the investigation, right? Um, and what's interesting is that he's from Bolsonaro's former party. He's he's also far right. Uh, and um, a, like a bunch of the people in the elite who are on the right have just jumped ship from the Bolsonaro administration. So I think the conjuncture has changed because international capital wanted Lula removed from the election. Okay. International capital. I don't think, I don't think the U S state department or international capital will be very comfortable, um, with continuing Bolsonaro government right now, because Brazil's like, he's, he's so bad that even from like a libertarian or right wing perspective, he's, he's causing a lot of loss of investment in Brazil. He's, he's bad for business too. It's not good for business to have a genocidal maniac running a country, you know, especially one as unpopular as 
Bolsonaro is right now. So I don't think that the conjecture will allow the military to do that much right now. I hope not, you know, because Brazil's kind of at this crossroads right now where either Lula's going to be the next president or there's going to be a total 1968-style clampdown, you know, and maybe the military will just take over. As we speak right now, Bolsonaro is in the hospital. Uh, he might be in the hospital for another 15 days, and his vice will take over the country during this period. His vice president, who is another military general, General Hamilton Morán, he retired in order to run for vice president, um, and he was a you know a big actor during the dictatorship. So, having a general in charge of the country with all these generals, there's more military in the government right now than there was during the last two periods of the military dictatorship. To give you an idea, even during the dictatorship. They didn't rely so much on military and the government as they are right now. So it's hard to say how things are going to play out. Obviously, I hope that Lula can uh, run and be elected. You know, um, what the, it seems like what capital and the elites, the Comprador elite class and the U.S. and everything, they're really hoping that Bolsonaro is gone and another right wing alternative, like a, a woke, uh, you know, gender woke uh, president can take over who continues with the same ultra neoliberal economic policies which started in 2016 when they illegally removed Dilma Rousseff from office. So there was a report at Bloomberg on July 3rd that stated lower House Representative Luis Miranda speaking at a congressional committee probing Bolsonaro's handling of the pandemic said he had held a meeting with President Bolsonaro in March when he described a series of irregularities in the purchase of the Covaxin vaccine produced by India's Bharat Biotech International Limited. During the conversation, as described by Representative Miranda, Bolsonaro blamed his leader in the lower house, Ricardo Barros, for meddling in the health ministry, but didn't stop the purchase. The ministry signed a contract to purchase, as you were saying, 20 million doses for 325 U.S. 325 million U.S. dollars, although no no shots have been delivered yet. Why would Bolsonaro blame his own lower house leader, Ricardo Maberos, and then do nothing about it? Does does this reveal a fissuring of support within Bolsonaro's ranks? Bolsonaro's, you know, uh, former supporters have been stabbing each other in the back since he took office. I mean, a lot of his key right, I mean, he left his political party after taking office. He broke from the entire right wing party, PSD that he came to power on. Um, and, you know, uh, some evangelical leaders have broken with him. Some of his biggest supporters have broken with him. So um, they're all just stabbing each other in the back. And that's and Bolsonaro is just worried about saving his own skin at this point, because he's now suspect in a federal police investigation for felony malfeasance, which it means exactly like knowing that the scheme was going on and not doing anything to stop it. So he's just bl trying to blame everyone. Like, I mean, it's gotten the blame game has gotten so ridiculous. But OK, so he's in jail. Uh, he's in jail. He's in. I wish he was in jail. He's in the hospital right now with a he started having these hiccup attacks last week and he had to cancel speeches and stuff like that. And now he's in the hospital with a bowel obstruction. You're mentioning how involved the armed forces in uh, were in Brazil's government, you know, uh, during right now, you know, with the with Bolsonaro. But during Lula's 
time in office and Dilma's time in office. So from January 1st, 2003 to Dilma taking office on New Year's Day in 2011 to her legally dubious ouster on August 31st, 2016, how involved was the military within that government? Is the military always, is it, is it avoidable to have the military involved in your government? Well, you know, unlike, for example, Argentina, uh, when the dictatorship ended in Brazil, they gave amnesty to all of the military officers and the government officials, Congress and Senate, who took part in that government, despite all of the human rights atrocities, which, as we know, the U.S. doesn't really care about as long as you push through policies benefiting its corporations. Okay, um, so... They've always been there lurking in the background. During the PT years, they rose the salaries significantly for the military. They increased budget for the military. And it seemed like, you know, they had a pretty decent relationship, although there was a major fight that broke out over the Minusta uh, occupation of Haiti, which um, Brazil uh, was in charge of the military um, arm of Minusta under orders from the UN. Um, when that massacre happened in Cite Soleil in 2004, the general in charge was Augusto Heleno, and Lula had him removed from Haiti. And he's been a huge enemy of Lula and the PT party ever since. And he's a very powerful guy within the military. He's now um, the chief of institutional security for the Brazilian government, which is this kind of like mega cabinet position, which oversees 17 government agencies, including intelligence, the federal police, and 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 other important agencies. Um, and he's now one of the, if not the most powerful person in Brazil, you know. And um, and so the the situation is very different now in that you have in a military that's openly attacking the PT, calling them communists and, and things like that. So uh, the dynamics definitely very different. But what's ironic is that Bolsonaro hasn't done as much for the average military officer as the PT government did. You know, um, when they, I mean, the average military enlisted person, right? The, the rank and file of the military is doing worse now than it was during the PT years. So on Monday, Axios reported that under pressure over a deepening vaccine scandal and watching his approval rating slide to new lows, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is lashing out at his critics and threatening to reject the results of next year's elections. Would the military, in your opinion, support Bolsonaro if he rejected the 2022 election results or would the military see that as going too far? No, the big worry is that that's what would happen, really. You know, that's the big worry. But unlike 2016, at this point, um, it doesn't look like, well, I'm hoping, right, that the U.S. State Department decides that it doesn't want that to happen and that they don't get any support for trying to do something like this. And, you know, but it's hard to say. I mean, would the U.S. prefer a military dictatorship to like a moderate social democrat government like the one during the PT years, it's it's a possibility. I mean, it's not like the U.S. has never supported military dictatorships in Latin America, you know, and it's not like there isn't a new Cold War starting and stuff like that. 
I mean, we know the CIA chief visited Bolsonaro and General Heleno two weeks ago, and nobody knows really what they were talking about. But, you know, I hope they weren't saying, go ahead with the uh, dictatorship if, if you lose the election, you know? Axios also states Bolsonaro has faced weeks of street protests and a data FOLA poll suggests that for the first time, most Brazilians now support Bolsonaro's impeachment, though it's unlikely for now. Polls also show him trailing his likely rival in the October 2022 presidential election, former President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva. Is there any talk of impeaching Bolsonaro? What is the likelihood that the current pandemic corruption investigation could end in impeachment? Well, it could very well because there's over there's 120 impeachment requests um, sitting in the head of Congress's, you know, file drawer right now that he's refusing to act on because Bolsonaro passed out billions of dollars in pork to Congress to prevent him from being impeached. You know, and the guy's an ally, still an ally. The problem is he's under investigation right now, too, as part of this scandal. And um Members of Congress are making it clear that if he doesn't initiate or bring an impeachment request to the floor, you know, they could go after him full force. So the, let's put it this way. The, the PT has always said that an impeachment uh, process will only go through if Bolsonaro's approval rating drops below 20 percent. It's dropped from like 37 percent to 23 percent in the last three or four months. So it's getting close to the point where an impeachment might actually be feasible. But then what do we, you know, then what do we have? We have General Moran uh, as president. That's not that good. You know, that's, he's a military general, you know? So, and, uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. I was just gonna say that Axios cites pollster Mauricio Mora, founder of IDEIA Big Data. And he is quoted saying that Bolsonaro has been bleeding support in metropolitan areas and high in, from high inflation and you know slow vaccinations. Clear evidence of corruption could make that decline irreversible. Mora's poll suggests, but only if he's implicated directly rather than his sons or close associates. Uh, Flavio Bolsonaro is in the headline at the Brazilian report. Which the headline states the COVID hearings gamble to get Flavio Bolsonaro, which reported that the in- inquiry rapporteur is going after two lawyers linked to the president's eldest son, believing his fingerprints are all over the Covaxin scandal. What is the likelihood that family members or other politicians will be blamed for the corruption, leaving Bolsonaro not directly implicated and therefore running for president again in 2022? The, the odds of that are pretty low because it's not just the Covaxin scandal involving Bolsonaro that's come out during this investigation. His ex-sister-in-law has testified that uh, for the entire 26 years that Bolsonaro was in Congress, he was skimming salaries of his staff. You know, they were all kicking back money into his, you know, and his family's accounts for 26 years. So that's a second scandal he's tied up in right now. Not to mention the 120 different crimes he committed, allegedly, each one resulting in a separate impeachment request. So Axios also quotes Gustavo Ribeiro, founder of the Brazilian Report, writing via email, Bolsonaro is facing an uphill battle, but it remains far too early to rule him out of contention for the presidency in 2022. More than anything, presidents in Brazil are judged based on the economy. Axios added that Ribeiro reports that government officials believe in economic growth, 
of 4 to 5% this year, 3% next year, would be enough to secure re-election. Would that be enough, in your opinion, for Bolsonaro to be fairly re-elected? Uh, let me tell you about this guy from the Brazilian report. He was fired from Veja magazine, which is the largest news magazine in Brazil, for being arrested, breaking into um, one of the PT leaders, um, uh, José Dirceu's hotel room in around 2011, 2010. Uh, so I don't trust his analysis on this. You know, I, it's just it's just nonsense. Okay, well, let me, he's, let me just quote him one more time then, because I just want to see if you, take, you believe this either. He's also quoted saying vaccination is progressing in Brazil, and while that is not thanks to Bolsonaro, he could reap the benefits. Axios states that Ribeiro also notes that Bolsonaro is also planning to extend the popular cash transfer program. Do you think Bolsonaro could win the October 2022 presidential election just by expanding vaccinations and continuing the cash transfer program? What he did this year was he cut the cash transfer program by like 70 percent. So it's only it's only like sixteen dollars a month right now per person. It's not that popular. Uh, last year it was more popular. So uh, at this point, Bolsonaro, electorally speaking, is dead in the water. He's dead in the water. There's no chance of him ever jumping up from 23 to 50% by next year. It's absolutely out of the question. The, uh, the only way he can win this election is fraud. And um, the only way he can really stay in power is a coup. To what extent do you think this investigation is an investigation of the former military dictatorship? Is the possibility of sliding back into a dictatorship what's really on trial? No. I don't think uh, that's not really I mean, it's embarrassing the military for sure. It's, um, you know, it's reminding people how how corrupt the military was, people who can remember, you know, it's a, a lot of young people now were born after the dictatorship ended. A lot of voters, you know, it ended in 1985. But no, it's not because there's all kinds of people coming up and testifying. It's not just the military. So if charges and convictions and sentencing were approved by the courts, sentencing of military leaders for corruption, if that actually happens, does the military have the power to say no and stage a coup? How much of a threat is there that the military could just take over again? Or do you think that's just an impossibility? No, I think it's a very um, serious possibility, you know, but I think that um, if, if that move is not supported by China and the US, it would be very difficult for them to pull off. If the US State Department gives it the green light and promises support, like it's done so many other military coups in Latin America over the last 100 years, then it's a possibility. And um, I don't trust Anthony Blinken at all. You know, I don't, I don't, he's, uh, they haven't even undone Trump's, you know, extended sanctions on Cuba, which was something Biden was hinting he would do if he took office. So, and you see the color, the um, fake color revolution going on in Cuba right now. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, the U.S. is like engaged in trying to overthrow the governments of Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua right now and put in right wing governments. So it's really up in the air at this point. I think it's really important for Americans to call their congressperson and tell them not to support 
Bolsonaro in Brazil. You know, there's a growing pressure from the Progressive Caucus against Biden on this issue. But for now, uh, you know, it looks like Biden has just tried to maintain normal relationships, relationship with the Bolsonaro administration. You also had a report on from the South in late June on the Cook County Hospital strike here in Chicago that ended Tuesday after 18 days. Hours before the strike ended, Chicago Public Radio WBEZ reported more than 2,000 Cook County workers have now been on strike for 18 days, making the walkout the longest public sector strike in Chicago in recent memory and the longest strike ever for SEIU Local 73, which represents more than 29,000 workers in Illinois and Northwest Indiana. The union represents a broad range of jobs from hospital housekeepers to phys- physician assistants, but includes some of the lowest paid workers at the county hospital. Uh, striking employees work at Stroger and Providence Hospitals, Cook County Jail, County Courthouses, and the county's Loop Administration Building, as well as other locations. And on social media, you posted the Biden administration has allocated $350 billion to local governments as part of this economic stimulus program. But in many cities, Democratic Party mayors aren't sharing it with the workers and continue to use the we don't have enough funding excuse to justify outsourcing and benefit cuts. In Chicago, frontline hospital workers at Cook County Hospital were offered a raise that doesn't cover their health insurance hike. In other words, after a year of risking their lives in the fight against the pandemic, they're all getting pay cuts. People are saying it's mean-spirited. People are saying it's morally wrong. People are saying it's cynical, not giving uh, essential workers enough of a raise to cover their health care benefit. So, Brian, what does that say to you about the way the state and the public views so-called essential workers? Well, I, I think what it reveals is that um, the Democratic Party is rotten to the core, much like the Republican Party, obviously. But, you know, like even when you have a president who's trying to, you know, improve things like infrastructure and, and public service um, delivery at the local level through this massive grant, you still have these mayors who are using this Reaganite language, you know, this voodoo economics language, Reaganite language about, uh, you know, fiscal austerity to block, uh, you know, benefits for their workers. For example, even in Lori Lightfoot is cutting teacher jobs now, even though they've just received the Chicago city government's just received like you know, billions of dollars to help cover education expenses. So um, there's just all the, it seems like there's all these roadblocks being put up at the local government level by people in his own party, you know, preventing the, the benefits from the stimulus package to, to, to really work and circulate. Because you know, as Lula proved during his administration in Brazil, Putting hand, money into the hands of like working class people is very good for economic stimulus. It's something that helped Brazil stay out of the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis because six months before that crisis started, Lula created a similar economic stimulus deal package to what Biden did, you know, that increased industrial production, increased employment in factories. So, um, you know, it's just to me, it's just a sign of the general rottenness of things. I mean, how could you call yourself a Democrat and be laying off teachers while you're receiving money for your education system? It seems pretty ridiculous. So, Brian, you are back here in Chicago in your hometown. When was the last time you were visiting here? 
Uh, it's my first time here in about six years, but it's the longest I've spent in the United States since 1999. I've been up here for like three months so far um, because of some family issues and also just to get vaccinated and and stuff like that. And it's just, it's great being back in Chicago. It's kind of weird. I feel kind of like a time traveler walking around my old neighborhood, which used to be a working class, mostly German neighborhood with full of factory workers. And it's now you know, two million dollar homes. So, so it's changed. It's changed a lot. So, how has it not changed? Uh, I'm surprised that there's still parts of the North Side that aren't like totally gentrified. You know, um, Albany Park neighborhood is still nice. Rogers Park still seems really nice. You know, but the the home prices are just insane. Even in the non-gentrified neighborhoods on the North Side, it's crazy when you think. You could buy a nice house in St. Louis for like $40,000. And even in the non-gentrified areas of the North Side, it's three hundred and fifty to $400,000 a house. <laughs> yeah, friends of mine in Lansing, Michigan are buying homes for like sixty dollars and $80,000. They're just spectacular. And people keep telling me, you know, this is a, a really good time to sell. You can get a lot of money for your place right now. Well, yeah, but then I have this money and I still can't afford the other homes, which are also still a seller's market. So it doesn't really make sense whatsoever. Are we going to be drinking while you're here in town? Man, I am definitely going to be drinking with you, Chuck. <laughs> All right. So, we got to do that know? soon. Definitely. All right. Thank- I just, I, just w- I want to find out the day when Carrie's Lounge has the best food set out in the afternoon. <laughs> you missed uh, Alex's fried chicken last night. It was spectacular. I know. I, know. I hear. I heard. All right, Brian, until well, next Jeff, time. Jeff Dorshin's in town, too, right? Yes, so. he's going to be doing his moment of truth right in just a couple of seconds. So I'll be talking to you soon, Brian. Thank you so much for being back on the show. I'm looking forward to drinking with you. Uh, drop by for the July 24th event with Brian, with Brian and uh, well, with Jeff, I should say. And uh, we'll be seeing you then. All right. Take, All right. Take it easy. See you. If you like what you just heard from Brian Muir on Brazil, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after. On Patreon tomorrow. I had a taste of normal last night, and I have to say it was bittersweet. I really enjoyed hanging out at the bar last night, meeting listeners I've never met before, getting in contact with friends I had not seen, seeing neighbors who I had only bumped into on the street over the last year, drinking beers in the beer garden, enjoying Alex's incredible fried chicken. That was the that was the sweet part of what I guess was we can call it normal. But there was a bitter side to it too. There was something that wasn't sitting quite right with me. In fact, I I think the pandemic has really changed me, and I'll tell you exactly how the pandemic has changed me on tomorrow's Friday Patreon podcast at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell because there's something very weird about returning to normal. Is it just me, or is there something very abnormal about returning to normal while the rest of the world burns or was that normal all the time have we up here in the global north or over here in the west whatever you want to call where we live our privileged lives have we always been whistling by the graveyard while the graves are still being dug 
We'll also be playing our 2002 talk with Institute for Food and Development Policy Food First co-director Peter Rossett, who is on to tell us about the problems and myths revolving around world hunger and what happened in the previous week's 2002 World Hunger Summit in Rome. We're playing this interview because Peter is cited in Maiwa Montenegro DeWitt's book that we discussed on uh, yesterday's show. Uh, her book, Abolitionist Agroecology. In that book, Maiwa writes, within the past decade, agroecology has gained new popularity with everyone from CropLife, a trade group representing the agrochemical industry, to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, newly enhancing its terms, if not only always its tenets, sorry, newly embracing the terms of agroecology, if not always its tenets. She then quotes Peter, writing with agroecologist, Omar Felipe Giraldo saying agroecology has gone from being ignored, ridiculed, and or excluded by the large institutions that preside over world agriculture to being recognized as one of the possible alternatives available to address the crises caused by the Green Revolution. Peter and Omar are concerned agroecology will be co-opted, institutionalized, colonized, and stripped of its political content. And without that political content, it's arguable that whatever global corporations and institutions come up with will no longer be agroecology. So we thought it was a good time to go back nearly 20 years to see what agroeconomists' concerns were when it comes to hunger and if those concerns have changed at all over the past couple of decades. So tomorrow on the Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. My return to normal is fraught with guilt, and I'm wondering if yours is too, and a 2002 conversation on the state of hunger nearly 20 years ago, but you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff tries to tame taboos with internet knowledge. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, who will be the last against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be the last up against the wall? Daniel L. says, half the firing squad, half the firing squad, half the firing squad. <laughs> Eric T. says, the guy who pulled the trigger on all the people before him, toe on the trigger, then we dismantle the wall altogether. <laughs> the email, Adam A. says, big catch up. <laughs> who will be the last against the wall when the revolution comes? Shane M. says, not sure, but have you chosen your designated mourner yet? <laughs> Kim G. says, that billionaire stepping out of his just landed spacecraft and exi- excitedly espousing how cool Earth looks from a distance. And finally, this last one uh, via Twitter, Billy Wales 420 says, Tony Hawk. Yeah, Tony Hawk. I kind of like that. I just kind of like the idea of him being shot. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer ASAP as we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And I know you have Jeffy in studio with you. A taboo by the tail. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Political correctness has gone mad. Just ask a class reductionist. What's class reductionism? Well, if you ask a class reductionist, 
Class reductionism is the epithet cast by cafe liberals on actual revolutionaries who understand that class struggle must be the foremost revolutionary struggle. If you ask some identity reductionists, class reductionism is what leftists who can't be bothered to include persistent divisions across economic strata use to avoid having to question their dogma. If you ask me, class reductionist should be wielded only toward those who think of Marx as the Einstein of historical dynamism instead of as the Freud of economics. See, Einstein keeps being proven right, or relatively right. Freud was mostly wrong, but his basic diagram of a complex psyche, levels of which operate often at cross-purposes and parts of which hide from other parts, remains influential and relevant. If you ask an informed, experienced builder of collective community power, they might conclude that a class reductionist politics that interferes with building a multiracial and inclusionary working class movement is to be avoided. And an identity politics that interferes with building a multiracial and inclusionary working class anti-capitalist movement is to be avoided. The basic lesson seems to be don't interfere with building a multiracial and inclusionary anti-capitalist working class movement, yeah? But there are other concerns in life. Music. Class reductionists enjoy music, grudgingly, because it's expensive. Identity reductionists enjoy music, grudgingly, because of its service to the white heteronormative patriarchy. But nobody enjoys the brouhaha around the song, Baby It's Cold Outside. Back in the day when it won the Oscar for Best Song, people thought it was too sexually suggestive, which is just insane. Nowadays, sensitive people object to it because it's rapey, and the traditionally male voice isn't concerned about consent, and the whole thing is jokey about serious subjects like roofies and whatnot. It doesn't help that such luminaries as loudmouth paleoanthropological anachronism Sharon Osbourne have argued the song's innocence. What no one seems to understand is the song's disturbing origin. I learned all about it on the internet. Someone traced the basis for the lyrics back to a legendary creature called the Cold Baby. It was a baby with no eyes that was, I guess, used to scare olden days Pennsylvania children to keep them inside in the winter. Not sure why you'd want to keep your kids underfoot all winter, but apparently you really must stay the cold babies outside was a phrase repeated to children, maybe as a threat, that if they didn't behave, they would be thrown out to where the cold baby with no eyes was waiting to scare them. I found out the legend of the cold baby goes back even further, all the way back to late medieval China. It migrated to Japan in the Edo period and became part of the Hayaku Monogatari Kaidankai, the gathering of 100 demon stories or Something like that. It's a variation of the Snow Mother and Snow Baby, the Yuki Onba and Yukinko. In that legend, a good-hearted person is walking through a blizzard, meets an exhausted mother who asks the sojourner to hold her baby for a little while, just to give her a break, and it doesn't go well. But in the cold baby legend, there is no mother. The innocent wanderer finds the eyeless, cold baby lying, wrapped in insufficient swaddling, in the snow. The wanderer feels compelled to pick up the near-frozen infant. In the few moments, the coldness of the cold baby transfers to the good Samaritan who is frozen to the spot, helpless. 
The cold baby then thaws into a wriggling demon baby and devours the ill-fated stranger. So however you feel about the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, remember it's disturbing Genesis. And if your children are driving you crazy in the winter, just threaten to send them outside to be eaten by the cold baby. I believe that sufficiently complicates the simplistic tussle over that song. I will now proceed to complicate the use of the N-word. I'm sure I don't have to educate anyone on the history of the N-word and why it centers such a powerful linguistic taboo, but I believe there is one situation in which a particular white person can say the actual N-word. I can hear you all trembling in your comfort zones. Relax, I'm informed by the internet on this one too. Remember back in the early days of acknowledgement of the COVID-19 virus back in March, April, and May of 2020? And remember what a lousy person our president was? Now, you may think we have a lousy president now, but the old lousy president was also a lousy person. I'm not going to argue with you. As much of a sociopath as Biden must be to have risen from wherever he began to where he is now, he will never be as crappy and worthless a human being as Trump. If you had to be trapped on a desert island with one or the other of them, I guarantee Trump would slit your throat, deep fry you, and eat you within the first five minutes. All Biden would do is try to negotiate a mass transit system and develop a plan for taking over either islands, but you would be enlisted rather than digested. So back in those early months of the pandemic lockdown, you might remember that it was hard for healthcare workers to get proper masks. There was a shortage of everything. You couldn't buy rubbing alcohol of a high enough percentage to disinfect your hands. You couldn't even get tested. There was a shortage of tests. You didn't even know where you could go to get a test because, I mean, you basically couldn't go anywhere. Now, do you remember this? A tiger got COVID. It was big news. Like in a zoo, a tiger got COVID. We're living through a dumpster fire presidency. The West Coast was on fire, if you remember. Cops were shooting black people like it was their job. Mercenaries supposedly federally deputized in unmarked vans were kidnapping protesters. I mean, it's not that much better now, but during all that, we learned that a tiger had COVID. How does a tiger in a zoo get COVID? Did it sneak out and go shopping at a store that wasn't strict about social distancing? I'm scrolling through Twitter around then, and somebody has quote tweeted a photo of the tiger above the headline, Tiger Test Positive for COVID-19. And the quote tweeter tweeted plaintively, how this you get a test? I found that highly amusing, and perhaps you do too. I mean, referring to a tiger like that is funny in itself, and complaining about a tiger cutting in line for a test. I don't want to over-explain, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with a person of whatever complexion recounting that Twitter witticism. I mean, I don't hear anyone else repeating it, and it's a good one. I mean, that's not true that I don't think anything's wrong with a white guy telling it. I'm sure there's something wrong with it, and there's definitely something wrong with me for thinking I can retell it in a funny enough way for it to be justified. But when this gets replayed on the podcast, it'll get bleeped, and that's fine, because Everyone will know instantly what's under that bleep. Now, it's not that I believe I've discovered the philosopher's N-word that racists have been looking for since they began to get pushback for saying it, but I think we can put to rest the idea that under no circumstances can a white person use the N-word in a remotely amusing fashion. But suppose I failed. 
Someone out there might be offended, regardless of context or content. I am white, and I said it. Why attempt the unassailably hurtful for such a dumb reason? Because I love the quote tweet, and I love whoever the quote tweeter was, and I wanted to spread that love. The original quote tweeter may come forward and denounce me, but I truly believe that enjoying my retelling of that tweet and my revealing the true horror behind Baby It's Cold Outside are steps toward helping us all just a tiny bit build a multiracial and inclusionary working class anti-capitalist movement. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, how are you enjoying staying up here at the studio? I am loving it. The first night, Mm -hmm. it was like being in a film noir with the uh, neon carry sign out the window and the street light. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was great. Oh, wait, I have an answer to the question from hell. Oh, well, wait one second. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Jeffy, let's hear your answer, and then we'll have Alex give the rest of our listeners answers. What's your answer, Jeffy? Well, uh, who will be the last against the wall? Yeah. Up against the wall? Yeah. Redneck mother, mother who has trained her son so well. He's 34 and drinking in some honky-tonk, kicking hippies' asses in a raisin hell. Um, that is from what song, or are you just... That is from a song called Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother. Huh, I see. Who's it by? I can't remember. <laughs> Probably, you know, mer- one of those Merles or something. <laughs> All right. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you... We got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. 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 But we have to have your answer right now as we're about to reveal this week's winner to the question from hell. Alex, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers. Yeah, to this I got a couple question. more. Ronald A. says the Trumpists that refused vaccination. Yeah. Uh, Greg says... <laughs> The surviving members of Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> I want to know what's going on with your grudge over there, Greg. And then finally, uh, Kilter says the complaints department of the Serious Cybernetics Corporation. <laughs> the surviving members of Jefferson Airplane. I'm glad it was Airplane and not Starship. Why is he after Jefferson Airplane and not after Jefferson Star- Starship, which was clearly a much worse band. I also liked uh, Big Ketchup. I thought that was a really good answer. Uh, let's see, what else did I like? John saying... Uh, the last, let me make sure this, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes, John said the tuck pointers, which I liked Krimsky saying the firing squad Jacob, I don't know why I like the answer Tony Hawk so much, Mark saying no one will know because it won't be televised the guy who started the revolution is who will be the last person shot, according to Fabio Warren L said that's the fun thing about revolutions, you never know who will go from being one of the cool kids the scapegoat we Adam A saying as always the last against the wall we're always the best at straddling the fence and Braden saying the capitalist who sold us the wall any of those really strike you Alex you have a favorite I'm just glad no one said my mom this time 
Uh, the the problem with the uh, Jefferson, the surviving members of Jefferson <laughs> Airplane is really good. Yeah, I think I got to go with that one too. That is fantastic, Mark. I want to apologize because your answer, no one will know because it won't be televised. I was thinking that was the best answer until I heard that Greg says it's going to be <laughs> surviving members of Jefferson Airplane. I just find that so great and bizarre. So, congratulations, Greg. All you have to do is send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, which piece of merchandise you want. We'll get it into the mail ASAP. My answer to the question from Hell, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes. From all the firing squads I've seen in cartoons and movies, I can only assume the last one up against the wall when the revolution comes will be... The person who takes the soon-to-be-executed's final request. So the last person against the wall will be whatever you call that person who lights your last cigarette. I mean, they're standing right there in front of the wall. Out of sheer convenience, I'd figure that would be the last one who was shot. Thanks to everyone for sending in your questions to this week's, your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled no, yet for next week's show? No, not yet. Shows? I was freaking out about it, so uh, I'll get to work as soon as I get home on that one. Uh, you sent me some links. I'll go check them out. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's cure is oily fish, although the nutritionist who suggested oily fish does work for a fish oil supplier. Thanks to this week's guests, including historian Gabriel Winant, author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry, and The Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Also, thanks to, uh, let's see, who was on Tuesday's show? Now I can't even remember. Thanks to yesterday, oh. Brad Evans. Brad Evans, who talked to us about his new book on violence. I have the wrong thing copied and pasted in here. Also, thanks to environmental studies scholar Maiwa Montenegro-DeWitt, author of Abolitionist Agroecology, Food Sovereignty, and Pandemic Prevention. And thanks to today's guest, Brian Meir, who is Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing today's show and for booking this week's guests. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Egon Shealy for running the board this week. Also, thanks to Jess Litka for running the board as well. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Special thanks to Theron Humiston. Get your foot fixed. My God, what the hell's going on with you? Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell, when I'll be sharing my struggles with returning to normal while thousands are still dying every day from the pandemic and infections are up nearly 60% over the last two weeks here in the States. And we'll be sharing our 2002 interview with Peter Rossett on the problems and myths revolving around world hunger and what happened at the 2002 World Hunger Summit in Rome. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get all of... Get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.